All right, Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6. This is the, this for me is the section of Romans I did not want to get to. Romans 6 and 7. In my estimation, now I know all the commentaries say the most difficult section is what? Romans 5, 12 through the end, what we just completed, right? All the commentaries say that's the most difficult section. We spent a lot of time on that, correct? We spent a lot of time. We spent, uh, we, we kind of took a little detour, talked about the doctrine of sin. And I think, and then I did kind of my summary of Romans 5, 12 through 21. I think I did that last week. So we kind of, we kind of completed that and hopefully everyone has a good grasp of it. All right. But so far, this is what Romans has done. Romans 1, 2, 3, 4, and 5 has really given us a theology about sin and salvation and justification. Everybody got that? Chapter 6 marks a transition, a massive change. And now the change, well, I'll, I'll tell you what the change is going to be, but it marks a major change. Now, for me, Romans 5, 12 and following is difficult it's difficult because of the way it's kind of wordy and you have to kind of really figure out what's going on there. But I don't think it's like over-the-top difficult, like all the other commentaries explain. To me, what, what has been the most difficult part of Romans so far, and you should remember this. I say I'm going to ask some questions, okay? Uh, what is the most difficult section of Romans that we have come across so far from Romans 1 to Romans 5, to, up to Romans 6? Okay, Bobby just said it. I think it's Romans chapter 2, verse 6. Is it 6 or verse 9? Verse 6. Okay, good job, Bobby. Um, which says we're going to be judged according to our, our works, our deeds, right? Depending on your translation. And remember that one, I, even though most other churches act like it's no big deal, that's, that, that absolutely, I still don't even understand it. We, look, we spent weeks, months trying to figure it out, and I finally gave the best theory I could come up with. And the best I can say it's a theory because I don't have, I don't have a better answer for it. That, that raises all kinds of questions because here's a book telling us that we're, we're justified by what? Faith, grace, Christ, and that we can throw in a word alone, 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 right? We're not justified according to our works, alone. Well, if we're, I'm justified by Christ alone, through faith alone, grace alone, and his righteousness is imputed to my account, then how in the world am I going to stand before God and be judged according to my works? And if you say, well, your works proves your justification, well, wait, my justification is proved by the imputed righteousness of Christ. It would be his works, not my works. So why can my works be judged? Makes no sense. And we listen to sermon after sermon. I listen to sermons from churches in Abilene on it. And it's like, it's an absolute, I'm sorry, it's an embarrassment and a joke and how they even tried to handle it. They didn't even try to handle it. And we, we did the best we could, and, well, we can come up, we can do whatever we can with it. But now we turn to a section in Romans that, oh, man. This is the section, th- this is the frustrating part about this section. 99.9% of the churches don't believe it's a problem. I'm baffled and have been baffled my whole Christian life how it's a problem. Because to me... It makes no sense. And here's the reason it makes no sense. And I'll explain it. I don't want you to really remember this because I have talked to you about this. It feels like a million times. Everyone remember that in Christianity, I believe there's at least two, there's two Christianities. There's the Christianity we sell, right? It's the Christianity we run around and we tell everyone, hey, come to Jesus and you're going to be this and this and you're going to get this and this and this. And we sell it like like what's an info commercial. And it's always positive, right? Come to Jesus and you're going to be better husband. You'll be a better wife. You'll be a better this. Your life will have purpose. Your life will have meaning. You'll have joy. It's all going to be great. It's all going to be wonderful. And you can overcome that sin. And if you were, if you were struggling with homosexuality, become a Christian. You won't struggle with it anymore. If you were addicted to porn, become a Christian. You won't be addicted anymore. And we sell it like this, like, man, you get it. And it's like a bomb goes off. Everything changes. Everything's better. Everything's wonderful. And it's great. And that's the way we sell it. Right? But then you look at what happens in the church 
week after week, year after year, and the lives of in your life and my life and Christians' lives, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, it's very different than the, way, the thing we sell. It's hard to say that it's not. Let me give you an example. I pulled up uh, from a, a study that was done. Now, this is a little older, so I'm assuming the numbers are probably even worse uh, today. But, yeah, um, you'll, you'll just see what you think about these numbers, all right? This is the title. Are Christians more moral or successful than non-Christians? Are Christians more moral or successful than non-Christians? Now, they, they go through and they talk about... Uh, Basically, this is the way the article states. Uh, it contains, uh, this study contains some frank statistics showing how the present church has failed in its mission. Now, the reason they say it's failed is because they're talking about, does Christianity make you more successful? Does Christianity make you more moral? And they go and study, 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 and they're like, hey, the church failed. Well, that is our mission to make people more successful? Is our mission to make people more moral? Now, some people will say, yes, the church is there to make people more moral, but is it really the mission of the church? Well, let's look at some of the things that they discovered, all right? They compared the behavior and attitudes of Christians with non-Christians, all right? And this is what they concluded. Christians think and behave no differently from anyone else. Here's some of the things they find. All right, divorce between Christians and non-Christians. Born-again Christians, 27% have been, uh, have been divorced. Non-Christians, 23%. Non-Christians get divorced less than Christians. Now, those, st- those statistics change all the time. We understand that. So statistics don't, are not like written in stone. They don't prove everything. But isn't that a little concerning? Now, what, what we all know, what's the built-in answer we're supposed to give when we read studies like that? Okay, we, we, we either say that or what else do we say? Come on, it's going to be the answer to every one of these. Well, they're probably not Christians. What? Okay, or they had either biblical grounds or, but, but in all these behaviors, what do we always say when, when what? There probably aren't Christians. That's our, our go-to answer, right? Oh, look what they did. That's bad. They're probably not Christians, right? I mean, we'll throw them out. We throw them out as soon as they make us look bad. Like, boom, get out. We don't, you're making our numbers look bad, okay? Um, which, that's, that's, that's not a good answer, is it? Because we would have done the same to whom? We'd have thrown David out really quick, right? Solomon out. <laughs> We'd have been throwing all kinds of people out, okay? All right, so those numbers, that's a little concerning, right? Have been divorced, all right? And these are among those who have been married. So born-again Christians, 27%. Non-Christians, 23%. Gave money to a homeless person or a poor person in the past year. Born-again Christians, 24%. Non-Christians, 34%. So non-Christians are more charitable, at least in giving money to the, ho- to the homeless, than Christians. Took drugs or medications prescribed for depression in the past year. Christians, 7%. Non-Christians, 8%. So we're a little bit better there. Just barely. <laughs> 1%. <right>? Barely. And, you, and you've probably known all kinds of professing Christians who've taken medication for depression, anxiety, and all kinds of other uh, issues. Well, wait, did, I thought, isn't Jesus the peace that passeth all understanding? Isn't Christianity about joy? Wait, wait, what happened? What happened to the peace? What happened to the joy? Um, let's continue. I see here. Um, watched an X-rated movie in the past three months. Born-again Christians, 9%. Non-Christians, 16%. Now, we're doing a little bit better there, but the issue is how honest are we, were Christians in even answering the survey? Uh, continue, uh, donated money to a non-profit organization in the past month. Born-again Christians, 47%. Non-Christians, 48%. So non-Christians give more money to non-profit organizations than Christians. That's pretty, pretty similar. Bought a lottery ticket in the past week. Christians, 23%. Non-Christians, 27%. Attended a community meeting on local issues. 
Uh, Born-again Christians, 37%. Non-Christians, 42%. Right? Uh, Here are some other... uh, These are examples of the similarity of attitudes between Christians and non-Christians. Feel completely or very successful in life. Born-again Christians, 58%. Non-Christians, 49%. So we feel more successful, I guess. Um, it It is impossible... To get ahead because of your financial debt. Christians, 33%. Non-Christians, 39%. The the thing there is demonstrating that Christians and non-Christians both uh, uh, have a lot of financial debt. Um, Next, you're still trying to figure out your purpose of life. 36% of Christians are still trying to figure out their purpose in life. 47% of non-Christians are. So we seem to be doing a little bit better there. Satisfied with your life. Born-again Christians, 69%. Non-Christians, 68%. Pretty, pretty similar, right? All right? And uh, they, they go on with some more and, and, you know, a lot of other different things here and we can talk about. But you get the idea. Study after study, what, is, what does these studies constantly seem to demonstrate? There's not a massive amount of difference. Now, we can always, now let's be fair. We can always go find those people in the world and their lives are really, really, really bad. And we can say, compared to them, we're what? We look really good. But the average lost person, just the average lost person you work with, your neighbors, admit, how different are you really to them? And this didn't even get into questions about how much time do you spend reading the Bible? How much time? Like, sometimes, sometimes those statistics are. <laughs> sometimes you have lost people who have read the Bible more than Christians, which is absolutely mind boggling. Okay? So, like, what? That raises questions, right? These statistics demonstrate what? That sometimes the Christianity we sell is really different than the Christianity that we live. Correct? The Christianity we sell is sometimes very different than the Christianity we live. You all, I mean, you all have been around Christianity long enough to know how we sell it, right? You've heard it. Yeah? I mean, you've all, I mean, you've heard it. You, you probably even, maybe even stated it or sold it the same way at some point in your Christian life. I know I have. We all have. So, what, how do we understand this? Well, the reason we have to come to this discussion is because in Romans chapter 6, here's what's about to happen. Paul spent five chapters giving us a theological understanding of justification, a theological understanding of the doctrine of sin. And guess what he's going to start doing in chapter 6 and 7? He's now going to say, here's justification, here's the theology of it. Now, what are the practical effects of it on your life? How does it affect your life? How does justification and salvation impact your life? How does it affect you? How does it change you? What does it do in your life? Now, if you've been in church for any length of time, you probably can all state it with me. What are you told over and over and over in churches about how Christianity should impact or affect your life? There's a certain verse that is quoted like, over and over and over in almost every church in America. There we go. 2 Corinthians 5.17. You can look it up really quick. 2 Corinthians 5.17. Let's just, you may want to just write this one down because this is like the go-to verse. It's on every, I mean, it's stated over and over and over again. Is it uh, 5.17? Okay. Oh, yeah, I'm reading 6.17. I'm like, no, it isn't. Okay, right? 5.17. Here we go. 2 Corinthians 5.17. How many can just state it from memory? Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. All right, we all know that verse, right? All stated it. Now we know in this church, I don't interpret that verse like any other church. Right? Everybody know that anytime I, anytime I teach it, I get 9,000 emails and me. It's like, what are you doing? 
thing. And I'm like, well, look, don't, don't email me yelling at me. Just prove to me that you're a new creature and all the old is gone and everything has become new. Just prove it to me. Don't email me. Prove it. I want a video of your life 24 hours a day for a month. And we'll see how much of a new creature you are. Guess what we're going to see? We're going to see plenty of what? Of the old. Agree? I mean, when you, become, when you first became a Christian, especially if you became a Christian older, didn't you kind of feel like, oh, this is it? I'm a, I'm, because you were told what? You're a new creature. And you're like, yeah. And then guess what happened? How long did it take for you to go, wait a minute? That's old thoughts, old ideas, old desires, old struggles. I thought that was all going to go away. And remember how I interpret 2 Corinthians 5.17? Everybody remember? It's how we are to view others. When someone becomes a Christian, I view them as a new creature. The, I don't, the old is gone. I don't hold it against them. I view them as a new creature. Are they actually a new creature, creature in practice? No, they're not. And how do I know this? Who was Paul writing to? The church at Corinth. Yeah. Okay. They they had pretty much every problem under the sun, right? I mean, like, so come on. So so who was the new creatures, right? No, that's how you were to perceive someone. Now, again, my interpretation is controversial, but uh, my thing is, if you don't like my uh, interpretation, you can prove me wrong easily, right? What do you have to do? Just be a new creature and uh, let everything be perfect. And, and even the people who quote that, do they, tr- do they believe there's a limit to it? Yeah. Because what do they always say? You're not going to be perfect. Well, wait a minute. I thought it was a new creature. Old things have passed away. All things have become new. Then why can't I be perfect? Well, you can't be perfect. Well, then that means there's something still what? Left. And what is that? Oh, the sinful nature. I thought it went away. Now, there are some Christians out there who believe in the eradication of the old nature, but what do they have to do? Just prove it. And can they ever prove it? No, they cannot. I, I, I worked with people. I worked with people who believed in the eradication of the old man, right, when I was in the military. Now, maybe I, was a, <laughs> maybe I wasn't the godliest, okay, because sometimes uh, I, I get irritated when people believe something that's whacked out. So, guess what I set out to do? Now, now I'm not saying this is godly. I provoked. I provoked until then they blow up and then I would be like, oh, well. There, there's, there's that sinless person. And then they, then they got even more angry at me and then said some words I can't repeat. Okay, so, but, but now I, I'm not saying that that's godly. I'm not saying that's godly, but what does it demonstrate? You, you are selling that there's this massive transformation that you don't actually live out. And everyone in this room, can we all acknowledge that the, you're very familiar that the old you is still very present? Very, 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 very present. And how do you, and, and I'm not saying that it always shows up the exact same way, right? I mean, obviously there were things I was doing before I was saved that I don't do now, obviously. I'm not selling drugs. Right? I'm not taking drugs. Right? But there's still plenty of the old that is what? Some of those same attitudes and, and, and thoughts are still there. Right? I may not be doing what I used to do. Not, not, not driving around with a gun underneath the seat selling drugs and involved in all the other craziness that we were involved in. I wouldn't, do it. I wouldn't go into Buffalo Gap Cemetery at midnight sitting on a, you know, a, a freshly dug grave with a Ouija board. I don't do that anymore. Okay? But... There's still that, that person that was sitting on that freshly dug grave with a Ouija board. That same person is still present in many ways. And don't look at me, because the same you is still present. So that's going to raise lots of questions, agreed? L- let's just look at some scriptures just to, to show you how this kind of plays out in the scriptures. Go to 2 Corinthians, well you looked at 2 Corinthians 5.17. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Because the Bible sometimes almost seems schizophrenic on this issue. All right, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 2. Uh, we'll go to verse 1 just for context. Paul called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ through the will of God, Sothenes, our brother, unto the church of God which is at Corinth, 
to them that are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints with with all that in every place call upon the name of Jesus Christ our Lord, both theirs and ours. That sounds good. Here's some sanctified people who, who are called to be saints. And then when we read Corinthians, what do we discover about these people? Right. What, what's, what's some of the issues going on in the church? Just name some of them. They're divided. They're suing one another. Right? Okay. They're using their spiritual gifts for what? purpose for their own edification their own glorification what what are they're fighting over all kinds of things right which meat meat offered unto idols can you eat not eat there's uh, someone who has been having a relationship with his stepmom right and and the, all kinds of things won't do anything about it i mean the church is a complete and utter mess well how, how can that be go to first corinthians this is, one, this is a passage that is used a lot in people in training to interpret 1 Corinthians. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. First Corinthians chapter 6, starting in verse 9. Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Be not deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with mankind, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners, shall inherit the kingdom of God. Now, everyone, so this is the way many preach this. Look, if you're doing these things, you're not saved. And how do we know you're not saved? Because those who do these things are not saved, because look what the next verse says. Verse 11. And such were some of you, but you are washed, you are sanctified, you are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. So how was that preached? Look, that's what you were before you were saved, but now that you're saved, you're none of those things anymore. That sounds good, right? And that's how it's preached. So how is this typically preached? Well, if you're, if you're involved in some of these activities then guess what? You're not saved. Well, okay. Well, let's go through. If we go through some of that list, we're going to be in, probably in very in great danger of being in trouble, right? Fornicators, okay, uh, sexual immoral. Well, we know that you can be sexually immoral without actually touching anyone, just looking at someone with lust. So, well, that's going to throw out a whole lot of people from the kingdom of God, is it not? All right? Um, idolaters? Well, what can an idolater be? Anyone who puts something before God. Oh, now, we're going to start emptying out the room really quick. Right? Left, left and right. Um, adulterers, same thing, effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with mankind, nor thieves, nor covetous. Are, are we going to get rid of all the people who covet? Yeah, there's no one who covets anywhere in here, I bet. Nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners. So, but the, it seems to imply that, hey, these people were like this, but they were changed. They were sanctified, they were justified in the name of the Lord. Okay, well, that sounds good, but... What, how, how do we understand this? But wait, we're still in 1 Corinthians, right? Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. First Corinthians chapter 3 can't be left out of the discussion. Look at verse 1. And I, brethren, and what does he call them? Brethren. brethren, could not speak unto you as unto spiritual, but as unto carnal, even as unto babes in Christ. Now wait a minute. He can't call them spiritual. He refers to them as carnal, but what does he refer to them as? Babes in Christ and brethren. So that means you can be clearly a Christian and be carnal. Well, what, what do we do there? Now, some say, no, 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 no. There's no such thing as a carnal Christian. No such thing. That's MacArthur's view. No such thing as a carnal Christian. One of the uh, uh, schools I went to, we had to do a whole paper on this. Nope, no carnal Christians. No carnal Christians. That, that Paul doesn't really mean what it seems to be saying there. And you get into discussion of what the words mean and how to uh, you know, interpret the words. Seems pretty clear to me. In fact, how, how bad off are they? Verse 2. I have fed you with milk and not with meat, but hitherto you were not able to bear it, neither yet now are you able. They're not even able to bear the meat of God's word. And at what's going on with them? Verse 3. For ye are yet... Now, this is what blows my mind sometimes with the Bible. Literally, it refers to them as babes in Christ. Literally calls them carnal. And then we're told they're not really carnal. 
I, I have a hard time. Sometimes, sometimes it's the passages that seem so clear that Christians can't agree on. But wait, for you are yet carnal, and what's going on? There is what among you? Envying, strive, divisions. Are you not carnal and walk as men? And then he gives an example of them fighting over their spiritual leaders. They're literally fighting. Now, when we look at 1 Corinthians, what does it sound like? That's a church made up of people who are very what? Sinful? Ungodly? Carnal? And immature? Guess what? They probably lived a lot. Guess, in fact, we've talked about this over and over. Remember every time I would preach 1 Corinthians? 1 Corinthians is a letter written to a church located in a city. And what was influencing the church more than anything else? The city. So guess what they were living like? Corinthians. So if there was a survey done, guess what you would have probably have discovered? They weren't very different than the other people. Now, how do we, how do we balance that out? Right? Well, I mean, we've got to come up with an answer. And guess what's going to throw, which, which is going to create such a problem? Paul is going to say things in Romans 6 and Romans 7 that seems to imply that you shouldn't be doing what anymore? You shouldn't be sinning anymore. You know why you shouldn't be sinning anymore? Because you died to it. And if you died to it, how can you live in it any longer? Well, then how do you reconcile that? Now, here's what preachers do. They stand behind the pulpit. Everyone preaches that and everyone says, Amen! Amen! And then everybody goes back and Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, you sin, you sin, you sin, you sin, you sin, but you never stop to go, well, wait a minute, what did I just learn in church on Sunday? I was always the one go, wait a minute, that doesn't make, that doesn't make, that, that doesn't make any, that doesn't make any sense, that doesn't make any sense. And I was always told, uh, you're making it too complicated. No, I, I, don't you think we need to figure this out? Everybody should say amen. We, we, need, we need to figure this out. All right, so go to Romans chapter 6. Now, today is just going to be more introduction than we can do anything else. I'm just going to try to, you know what I'm going to, basically, what my goal is today is to have you leave here with 9,000 questions and no answers. Okay, that's my goal today, all right? Because really, you need, if you don't feel the weight of the question then the, 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 the study of the chapter is not, you're going to miss out. Like, I, I, could just, I could just throw out a little outline, give you some basic points like all the other sermons I've listened to in Romans 6, and everybody would go home saying that was a good sermon, but what's the value if you say it's a good sermon, but if it doesn't actually accomplish anything, right? I don't, I don't care if you call it a good sermon. What I care is that you're like, man, I think I now understand Romans 6, or even better, I don't understand Romans chapter 6, and I don't know if I ever will. That may actually be better than actually saying you understand something that you don't actually understand. Does, does that make some sense? Okay. All right. Here we go. I hope we can, I hope this will uh, make some sense and we'll figure this out. Go to Romans chapter 6. Here we go. In this chapter, I, I looked at like thousands of outlines, and I decided that I'm going outli- to do a little different approach here. In Romans chapter 6, I think we can kind of divide this based off two questions that is asked. All right? I, at least I think there's, there's at least, we need to at least consider this. Look at verse 1. Look at verse 1. Romans chapter 6. Is there a question there? Yep. Okay, what's the base? Someone read it out loud. Uh, well, everybody can hear. Romans chapter 6, verse 1. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that the grace may increase? Okay, all right. So, what shall we say then? Shall we continue sinning so that God's grace may abound or that it may be present, right? So, what's the basic question that he's asking here? If we want to summarize it, make it simple. Paraphrase it. Shall we continue sinning? Now, now what, what, we know why the question's being asked, right? What has he been talking about for five chapters? You're saved by what? Faith in Christ, not by works. You're saved by Christ without works. You're saved by Christ without works, without works. So then if that's true, if, I'm saved, if, if God's grace is so amazing, he's going to save me, 
apart from works, then what would be an obvious question that probably... Now, uh, try to think of it like when you were a teenager and your mom or dad would give you a statement and you always have to ask some question and like to argue against it, right? Maybe I should have the teenagers think about it because they're probably better at it. Got more practice. But you, you know, you'll tell the teenager something like, okay, well, if that's so, then why can't I do this? Right? Oh, if that's true, then I'm going to go do this. Okay, everybody familiar with that? Okay, well, so you can understand someone's like, hey, Paul, if we're saved that way, then guess what? Why don't I just continue to sin? Because what difference does it make? And the more sin, the more grace, and God's grace is such a wonderful thing, then what? Well, we need more, more grace. Sounds like a good... Like, and, and some people would say the person asking that question is like, the way, uh, the way some commentaries put it is they, they place the question almost like the adversary or someone that's like almost a negative thing. I don't think the question is negative. Like, I know you can read it like, oh, here's someone trying to argue against Paul. Sometimes a question is asked. It doesn't mean that they're necessarily an adversary. They're trying to figure it out. So I, I don't think necessarily, maybe, maybe the person is asking it in, a, in an argumentative way. I don't know. I think it's a good question. Right? Look at verse 15. Do we have a question? Yeah, chapter 6, verse 15. What then, shall we, what then shall we sin because we are not under the law, but under grace? Everybody see that? All right. So this is the way I have it in my, uh, in my, in my notebook. All right. I think we have two major questions in this chapter. The first one is a question about sin and grace. That's in verse 1. And the second major question is in verse 15. Right? And it's a question about law and grace. Would Would you agree that's a good way to summarize those questions? Right? Verse 15 again, what then shall we sin because we are not under the law but under grace? And then, of course, he's going to give his short answer, but we'll get into that in a minute. So two questions. And what do they deal with? Sin and sin and grace and law and grace, but both ultimately dealing with sin, but in a different, from different perspectives. Hey, if, if grace is such a wonderful thing, then I should continue to sin so that I can get more grace. And wait a minute, if I'm no longer under the law... Then why why sin? Why 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 stop sinning? All right. So it's it's posing these questions, trying to get us think. But here's the question: the people asking the question, they're asking the question. And I want to make sure you understand the question in this way. The question is: okay, if I'm a Christian, if I've become saved, then what should my life look like after? What are the practical effects of my salvation? All right? Now, let's remind us of a very important question before we look into the text at all. All right? Remind us something, a very important theological truth. Because we are not Catholics, because we are Protestants, we have a very specific view when it comes to justification. Correct? And that view is, is that justification is a legal declaration, and where I am declared righteous, I am not made righteous, I am declared to be righteous, right? Because of an imputed righteousness that is accredited to my account. Within Roman Catholicism, justification occurs by God doing what? Infusing a righteousness, right? That I now cooperate with. So in our view, at least when it comes to justification, does justification change a sinner? Okay, I want everyone to say, does justification change a sinner? No. What does it change? Our position and my legal stand, but not, not, a pra- not a, a, an actual practical change in my life. A positional change, right? Because when I was declared, when I, when I was justified... That October, whatever October it was, in 1980, whatever it was, at First Baptist Church in Tuscola, when I, when I responded to the gospel, because of God drawing me and bringing me there, and I and responded to the gospel, make it very clear, at that moment, I was declared what? 
perfectly righteous. I was a new creature in Christ positionally. Everyone was to view me that way. But was I, when I walked out of that church, from a practical standpoint, I may have felt different, but it wasn't going to take long that those, that's the same Trevor was still there in all countless ways. Right? I mean, it didn't take very long. I mean, next thing you know, what, four months later, three months later, whatever it was, I was, you know, in the Sunday school classroom basically mocking the Sunday school teacher until she was in tears because I basically called her an idiot in front of everyone during the Sunday school class. That's not, <laughs> that's not godly. Okay, that's not very new creature-like, Right? Because I, I, there, was, there was arrogance and a little pride there. And I couldn't understand why this person was supposedly a teacher who was so dumb. And I didn't understand, like, how could you be teaching the Bible and I've been a saved three months and know more about it than you do? I didn't understand that. Now, that's not the godly way to mock the person until she breaks down in tears in front of everyone. That's not very good. It's not a godly thing to do. Right? Well, it's not a godly thing to do when I was at in front of uh, Taylor County Coliseum uh, trying to witness to people as they were getting ready to go into a concert, and I keep seeing these people go over to a truck, and they're, they're, there's a big thing in the back with all this beer, and they keep getting the beer, and as the people go in, I go and take all the beer and throw it away and fill it up with gospel tracks. That's not very godly to steal someone's property and replace it with gospel tracts. That's not, that's not really good, right? In other words, there's a lot of things I didn't have quite figured. I, did, I, I didn't have a lot of things quite figured out. Does that make sense? Okay. But guess what was true? I was still completely righteous before God. So we got to make sure we, we understand. We start off with the understanding that we don't believe justification changes. Now, what we always say is justification doesn't change us, but what does? Sanctification. That's always our answer, right? We try to separate them. Remember, Catholicism, in a sense, tries to put them together. We claim they're separate, but in a roundabout way, we still put them back together. It's really this weird thing. Well, okay, if sanctification changes us, all right, how does it work? How much does it change us? Raises lots of questions. Well, so these questions asked here in Romans 6, these are questions you should have been asking your whole Christian life. Okay, now that I'm saved, what now? Now that I'm saved, what should have happened? What has happened? Why isn't it happening? Like you should be bothered by it and uh, trying to figure it out. And I think at some point, either some people just give up and say this whole thing's a joke and just walk away. And I think others just kind of, it's just kind of like a, a, a defeat. Like, I'm just going to accept this is the way it is, right? Like, I don't know, I don't know how people, it would be interesting to know how Christians process it. Like, it would be interesting for you to articulate to me, like, at what point in your Christian life did you just realize, okay, like, you, there, there's, a, there's, a, there's a level of spirituality that you thought was needed, and then you've, you've, you've just kind of accepted that you've got enough of it, Right? You've got enough godliness. You've got enough this. Now, sometimes maybe you get convicted, but you, there's pretty much a kind of, you've kind of carved out what you think is acceptable, and you're just happy with that. Yes? Now, every once in a while, you may get convicted, but, I mean, for the most part, we all kind of figure out where this is what it looks like. But is it what Paul describes? Okay. Well, we're getting ready to find out. All right? We're getting ready to find out. So, what are the two questions? What are the two questions? Right? A question about sin and grace. All right? Second question? About law and grace. The, or law and sin. Okay, thank you. Law and sin. All right, what's the... Uh, the first question is found where? Verse 1. The second question is found in? 15. So, is it possible that the... Chapter begins with a question, and then from 1 to 14 is really an answer and an explanation. And then verse 15 is another question, an answer, and an explanation. I'm going to argue of, for that kind of outline. We're going to get a question, we're going to get an immediate answer, and then we're going to get an explanation. Now, you know I love that, Right? I know I make parents mad all the time, but I'm not, I hate the, the parental thing that when a child asks a question, you say, because I said so. I hate that. That drives me absolutely crazy. Okay. I, I, I hate that. Uh, 
When, when Stacy does that to the girls, girls, I would be like, no, that's not an acceptable answer. Just because you say so doesn't make it right. Just because you're a parent doesn't make you an expert. Where does that come from? Okay. All right. So I know parents get mad when I say that, but I can't stand that. Like I would hate when a teacher would say, because I said so. I'm like, Who, you're just a teacher. You don't, that, what is that? I need better than that. I can get teachers. The library is filled with teachers. They're called books, and they know more than you teaching here at Jim Ned. So get out of my life. Okay, so I need an explanation. What I love about Paul is guess what he does? Paul doesn't say, because I said so. I'm the apostle. He tries to do what? Give an explanation. I love that. I love it. And, as Sarah pointed out, it was a lengthy explanation. And the lengthier the explanation, the more convoluted it becomes. No, they're, they're actually truth. This, uh, uh, to be fair, I wish in some ways Paul wouldn't have given the explanation because then we wouldn't have the difficulties we're about to have. But yeah, it becomes even more convoluted. I think it does become convoluted in my mind. Yeah. Oh, yeah. P- yeah. Even Peter was like, I don't even know what he's talking about, right? But yeah, because it's, con- it's a very convoluted in my, my estimation. But so you know, I just want to make sure you see the structure. So how does it work? Question. Answer. Explanation. So question. Answer. Explanation. Then in verse 15, what do we get? Question. Answer. Explanation. Right? Now, where is the difficulty going to arise? The explanation. The explanation is where it's going to get convoluted. Right? Does everybody understand how the, the chapter is... Now, you may be thinking, man, you're spending a lot of time just trying to introduce this. Because I, I believe we're about to deal with one of the most difficult chapters in the Bible. Let me give you an example. Right? Ready? Romans chapter 6, verse 1. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. Now, if he stopped right there, that'd be great, right? Well, would we walk away from this with what? Well, no. No, absolutely not. Stop sinning. Great. Now, I'd still be left with, how do I pull that off? But at least I would understand. But Paul, no, 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 no. He's now got to explain. And this is where everything begins to fall apart. In fact, just immediately, what does he say? How shall we, that's Christians, that are dead to sin, live any longer? Stop right there. If that verse does not absolutely drive you almost to the point of drinking, I, I, then I... <laughs> Either A, you, 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 either your reading comprehension is better than mine, okay? Or B, you don't get bothered very much about things that should bother you, okay? But that verse drives me absolutely crazy. This is one of the verses I had to memorize as a young Christian. It was in my little Bible memory pack, and I was like, wait, this makes no sense. What does that sound like? Just, just from basic reading, just read. Don't try to overanalyze it. Just from reading it, what does it seem to tell you? Say it, Bobby. We're saved, we shouldn't sin. Thank you. And why shouldn't you sin? Because you're dead. Dead to sin. Now, has anybody here ever experienced being dead to sin? Not today, okay? Not, not today, okay? Yesterday you were doing okay, but then today you woke up and it all went, right? So, like, I mean, like, what does that mean? Didn't that, like, doesn't that drive you absolutely crazy? Hey, Paul, should I continue to sin that grace may abound? Well, what are you talking about? No way should you continue to sin. Because how could you continue to sin and live in sin? Because you're dead to it. Yeah, it, it sounds good sitting in church, right? If you're, at a, if you're at a conference and you're sitting there and, and you like the music and you like the preacher in a nice big building and it's like, ooh, amen, ooh, it feels wonderful. And you're like, yeah, we're dead to sin. And then, yeah. I mean, you, 
Yeah, yeah. And you know how it works. You can sit here. By the time you get from drive from here back to Abilene, who knows how, many, how much sin may take place in your car when you're arguing with one another or the kids are getting on your nerves or someone in traffic. You can, or, or for me, if I'm listening to Christian radio, that's when my sin starts because then I start screaming and wanting to go burn down Christian radio stations. Okay, so, so that, you know, like, don't, I mean, you've all experienced it, right? You get in the car and before you get home, you're thinking, man, I must have lost my sanctification, my justification, and my salvation between, you know, Ovalo and Abilene. Because you've all had those times where things don't go right in the car. Yes? Well, what happened? Remember uh, remember those statistics? More Christians divorced than non-Christians, at least at the time of that survey? Well, if two people are Christians and they're both dead to sin, and they're both dead, how are you getting a divorce? Well, well, they did this to me. You're dead. They didn't do anything to you. You're dead. Dead people don't go, you, you stepped on my grave. You trampled on my rights. Right? Has, has anybody witnessed that? I mean, I mean, I spent a lot of time hanging out in the cemetery at midnight, and I never had that happen. I had some weird messages on the Ouija board that, but that made me concerned. Okay, but that, that was about it. Right? But I don't think any of them ever said, get off my grave. Okay? Right? So the point is, if you're dead, that would seem to cut down on divorce. If, if the church is filled with people who are dead, how do you get church splits? <laughs> someone, someone came alive, right? I mean, and we know in 1 Corinthians, like, how... They were all divi- How could they be divided if they're all spiritually, if they're all dead, right? If they're all dead to sin, that means what? Dead to s- this sinful nature? Dead to sinful impulses? Dead to self, you know, selfish? I mean, self is the very essence of sin, correct? You're, you're not going to be worried about your rights. You're not going to be worried about what you want. You're, there's never going to be a problem. There's never going to be conflict. But we all know that that's not true in your family. That's not true in the church. It's not true. I mean, people, people do crazy. I mean, I, 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 the crazy things happen. Like, people don't even think about how it affects anybody else. I'll give you, you know, I can give you examples where, hey, pastor, I need to talk to you for a second. It's between Sunday school and the morning sermon. And then they take you back to the library and shut the door and say, just want you to know we're leaving the church. Well, thanks for telling me between Sunday school and church. Thank you. That's, that's wonderful because now I'm ready to go preach because I know I'm getting ready to lose people. Thank you so much for that. Thank you. Did they, do you even care how that impacts me? No, could care less. Now, now, of course, it shouldn't bother me because I'm supposed to be. So because it bothered me demonstrates that I'm not dead. Right? That the whole thing is a problem. So what have you done with that verse? You've all read it a million times. <laughs> right? I mean, doesn't it bother you? I mean, I want to be that, don't you? And Paul states it as not as something I need to pursue. He, pres- he states it as what? The answer to the question. What's the answer to the... What, I mean, this is the... His, uh, we're going to put this with the simple answer because uh, following it is really the ex- explanation. But his simple answer is, wait, what are you asking me about continuing to sin? There's no way you can continue to sin because you're dead. And dead people can't continue to do an action, right? When you die, you can't continue to do the action that you were doing because you're now dead. We all understand the language, right? And so we've got to fit. Now, here's the problem. What, what is Paul not going to do for us? Is he going to clarify this? Here's where it gets really confusing. Jump down to Romans chapter 7. We all know this is coming. Romans chapter 7, verse 15. We all know this. Romans 7, verse 15. Paul speaking. For that which I do, I allow not. For what I would, 
that do I not, but that, but what I hate, that do I. What's another way of stating that? Yeah, I don't do the things I know I should do, but the things I hate and things I shouldn't do, I do. Well, wait, Paul, you just said in chapter 6 that we're dead. So what is your problem? Now, this has led some biblical commentators to say what Paul was speaking of here was speaking of when he was lost. Right. Uh, well, yeah, I know. I'm just saying that... Yeah, some, some biblical commentators try to get around it and say, well, Paul was lost then and he was struggling. Well, I, how many lost people are going, wait a minute, the things I want to do, I don't do. Well, when, when was the last time a lost person was sitting there going, oh, I want to I live for God, but I, I no, that, that doesn't sound like the words of a lost person. That sounds like the words of a saved person who realizes we don't do the things we know we're supposed to do. But wait a minute, how can that be true if Romans chapter 6 is true. Now remember, this is both chapters are written by whom? The same person. So either the same person is schizophrenic, right? Or God is confused, or we've got to figure out how to understand this. Now the danger is trying to figure out how to understand this could go against uh, the way. How have you always heard this preached? How, in your in your Christian experience, how have you ever heard this handled? No, nobody, nobody's ever heard a sermon on Romans six. Okay. Okay. Ah, oh, there we go. Okay. Now, not just Church of Christ way. Now, th- this is very good because this, this gets into it. There's a, within not only just Church of Christ, but within a large body of the Protestant world, this is the way you handle this. Hey, if you're a Christian, you've died to sin and your life should be different. And if you don't demonstrate enough difference, you never were saved. Or, as Church of Christ, you lost your salvation. That's the, that's the uh, a way to get around it. Let's, let's listen to how one commentary puts this. All right. Um, I'll just jump in to see uh, here. Um, all right. Here's here's how one commentary puts it. Are you ready? Before salvation, sin cannot be anything but the established way of life, because sin at best taints everything the unredeemed person does. But the believer who has new life and is indwelt by God's own spirit, has no excuse to to continue habitually in sin. Now, I want you to just listen to those words. According to MacArthur, hey, because now you're saved, there is no excuse to continue habitually in sin. Now, stop right there. Do you agree with that statement or disagree with that statement? Well, here's the thing. Do all of you habitually sin? Yes! Because you sin what? Every day! Isn't that a habitual sin? Now, you could argue, well, it's about one sin that... Well, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Has anybody ever truly loved God with all their heart, mind, body, soul? All right. Then that means you've been habitually sinning since the day of your salvation. Have you ever truly loved your neighbor as yourself on a regular, consistent basis every single day? No. So that means you habitually what? Do you treasure God's word above everything else, more than gold and silver, than food? I I mean, I could love not the world, neither the things that are in the world, for all that is in the world is the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Anybody here love the things in the world? Set your affections on things above. I can, go, I can just go scripture after scripture after scripture after scripture. We can make a list of all the... Love your enemy. Turn the other cheek. Let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth. 
Well, if you love your enemy, then like, should, there ever, should you ever have conflict at home? How can you get mad at someone if you're turning the other cheek and loving your enemy? How can you get mad at your wife? Okay. <laughs> well, you're supposed to love your neighbor too. Do what? Right, right. But I'm just saying, like, if we really live that out, like, we, we, th- things would be like our lives would be. We don't follow those, right? So it's wonderful to put in a commentary. Hey, there's no excuse for Christians to live habitually in sin. Which everyone you wrote, everyone who's ever purchased this commentary by MacArthur, to, what's all? What do we all have in common? We all habitually sin. Now, he can't, he would have to write, no one will habitually sin in the following three ways, or the following, you would have to limit it, because sin is ever-present in our lives. We have the sin, now, we have the sin nature is present, now, 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 remember, some Protestants believe that the old nature is eradicated and removed. Okay, and they're going to use Romans 6 and 7 to prove that. Oh, I, well, then, yeah, then we have Paul battling. Right, and I want you to see that at times it's going to be like, wait, which one is, which Paul are we want, want? The Paul that says we're dead or the Paul that says, man, the things I want to do, I don't. I like the Paul who says the things I want to do, I don't do more than the other. Um, let's, uh, let's see, where, what else do they say here? Oh, yeah, I can, yeah, I can definitely relate to the Paul. I can't relate to the Paul's telling me I'm dead to it. But I can relate to the Paul who says, hey, the things I want to do, I don't do. But Paul somehow had to reconcile the two in his mind, right? I wish I could sit down with Paul and go, you've got to explain this to me, buddy. Chapter 6, you're telling me we're dead to it. And chapter 7, you're acting like you're not dead to it. So what did you mean that we're dead to it? Have we all misinterpreted it? Let me continue reading uh, this paragraph here. All right, here we go. Before salvation, sin cannot be anything but the established way of life, because sin at best taints everything the unredeemed person does. But the believer who has new life and is indwelt by God's own spirit has no excuse to continue habitually in sin. Can he then possibly live in the same submissive relationship to sin that he had before salvation? Put in theological terms, can justification truly exist apart from sanctification? Now stop right there. Uh Uh-oh. What did he just do? So if you, right. So can you be truly justified if you're not sanctified? And what's MacArthur's answer going to be? No. So then guess what? Justification and sanctification are what? The same. Whoa, 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 wait a minute. So guess what now? Guess what? For me to be justified, guess what I have to be? I have to be sanctified. So then how do I know if I'm justified? What do I look for for the assurance of my justification? I look to my sanctification, and if I don't have enough sanctification, then I'm not justified. Well, then wait a minute. Then forget the whole garbage that I'm, oh, I'm saved by Jesus. No, I've got to be saved by the sanctification that is, I've got to look to my sanctification, not look not to the cross. That's, if that's not Roman Catholicism, I don't know what it is. It's just Roman Catholicism, just without the Pope. Now, if I say that, I'm going to get 9,000 people who love MacArthur and accuse me of, you know, not knowing what I'm talking about. I didn't write that. My hope for my salvation cannot be my sanctification. It cannot. Because my sanctification is never perfect. It's incomplete. It's a mess. And don't look at me like that because your sanctification is the same way. I got to have something better than that. I got to have the finished work of Jesus Christ that is perfect, that his righteousness is imputed to my account. And what I'm hoping for, for my, my, what I'm counting on for my justification and my salvation is that. Now, it can't be anything else. All right, let me finish this and we'll, we'll stop. All right, so this is what he says. Can he then possibly live in the same submissive relationship to sin that he had before salvation? Put in theological terms, can justification truly exist apart from sanctification? Can a person receive a new life and continue in his old way of living? Does the divine transaction of redemption have no continuing and sustaining power in those who are redeemed? Paul 
Still another way, can a person who persists in living as a child of Satan have truly born again as a child of God? Many say yes. Paul says no. So according to him, Paul says absolutely not. If you're saved, boom, you're going to be sanctified, you're going to be different, and if you're not different, you were never justified. You were never saved. Now, that sounds good. That preach is good. But, and I used to preach it that way. But then you start having to ask yourself, well, wait a minute. How, how much is enough? Because is anyone going to be perfect? No. And what's required to And how much sanctification is required to prove that I was justified? How much? How much? And so we all know what the game is. What's the game here? You create the list. Right? Venial sins? Good. Mortal sin? Bad. Wait, that sounds like Catholicism. What does mortal sin do in Catholicism? Destroys the grace of God. What does venial sins do? Just hinder it. Just kind of bothers it a little bit. We have the same thing. Because clearly MacArthur knows that people sin all the time. Right? But as long as they don't commit the big one, then they're, that's garbage. That's, that's not even, like I don't, that's, why not just go back to Rome? Just go back to Rome. Oh, no, we don't want Roman Catholicism because we have to submit to a pope who tells us what the Bible, we would rather have just interpret the Bible ourselves, right? We don't want to have to submit to the pope. We know, you know, but, but if I criticize MacArthur, you think I've criticized the pope. So, you know, that, I don't get it. So, here's, I'm going to end with this. You ready? This is a subject that everyone here needs to struggle with. Right? Everyone here has to struggle with this. Paul tells us you're dead to sin. What does that mean? What does that mean? Has our understanding of this been wrong in the past? Everyone here knows. here's Here's the thing. Romans 6 tells you you're dead to sin, but everyone in this room has probably already sinned today maybe even sitting right now right in your mind because you're mad at something I've said already. Okay, who knows? Mad at your spouse right now or getting ready to have an argument with your spouse later. You're just waiting to have that argument. Okay, whatever the case may be, maybe you're bitter. Who knows what? But there's a, you know you've probably already sinned or you will before the day is out, right? I mean, you, you all know it. I mean, like there's no denying that, correct? So how do, you, how do you reconcile that reality with what we just learned that we're supposedly dead to sin? We've got to figure that out. Now, clearly, Paul, if we understand Romans 7, that Paul is speaking of the saved Paul, that Paul is speaking of himself as a Christian, he clearly then acknowledges that dead to sin doesn't mean stop sinning. In fact, he seems to state that he's so bad off that he cannot do the things he want to do. I mean, he, and the things he doesn't want to do, he keeps doing. Now, in our mind, we just say, well, that had to be really small stuff, you know. Had to be really, couldn't be a big sin. Couldn't be a big sin. Well, how do we know? I don't know what he was doing. He sounds pretty desperate, doesn't he, in Romans 7? Wretched man that I am. Well, you know, it wasn't a big sin. It couldn't have been a big sin that Paul was committing because he would have been disqualified from being an apostle. So it had to be a small sin. Well, how do I know? I don't don't know what he did or didn't do. I know that there's some great men in the Bible who did some pretty messed up stuff. So, does that mean that we've misunderstood Romans 6 all of these years and that we've sold it? Hey, come to Jesus and boom! All your, you're going to be this! And we convince ourselves of that and then it doesn't live. And the world loves when that happens. We, we promote it that if we become Christians, we have this power, we have this ability, we can live this godly life because God's giving us the strength. And I've always said, if God has given me the strength to live a godly life, how come he doesn't give me a strength to live a perfect one? Right? I mean, we all, we say, God's giving us the power. Well, if he's giving me the power to live a godly life, wouldn't that, wouldn't God's power be enough to get me to perfection? You would think, so even, so then that means there's a limit to God's power. Well, if there's a limit to God's power, then, so limit, the limit is to perfection. So how close can I get to perfection? And if I don't get that close to perfection, does that mean I not have the power? And how come the power seems to be more in one person and not in another person? Like, like there's a million questions. 
We've got to figure this out. I'm going to throw out the, the idea that maybe we've misinterpreted Romans 6 forever. Now, I don't, know, I, I, I don't know what the right interpretation is, but everyone here, I hope that you work on this, struggle with this, and you try to figure out the answer. I really hope you do. All right? And we're just going to go through it. Right? So next week, what are we going to work on? We're going we're to look at the question again. We're going to look at the answer. And then we're going to look at the explanation. And where are the problems going to begin? That explanation has divided Christianity for 2,000 years. Because some people believe the explanation teaches baptismal regeneration. Some people believe it doesn't. We can't even agree on the explanation. So, you, you, Sarah was right when she said his explanation makes things convoluted. It, it's, convol- it's literally divided Christianity for 2,000 years. Nobody knows what Paul means. Paul seems to indicate the way you die is through what? Baptism. So if I'm baptized, then boom, I'm dead to sin. Well, clearly that doesn't seem to be the case, right? Dead to sin. And what, so what question should we be asking? Dead to sin what? Ah, very good. Dead to sin in what way? What are our two options? Practically? Positionally. And what does it mean, positionally? All right, I'll stop right there. All right, I, I feel weird only teaching for an hour. I feel, I feel like... And then I'm just excited that people are here, so I don't want to stop. I just want to, I'm like, well, we're going to stay here till 5 p.m. tonight, okay? All right, yeah, y'all, y'all, then, then y'all start sinning, okay? <laughs> right. Then I'll prove to you that you're not dead to sin, okay? Because y'all, y'all start saying really mean things in your mind, all right? Oh, let's pray. Lord God, we come before you this morning. Lord, we thank you that we, in the midst of everything happening, that we still have this building, we still have the ability to, to teach and preach and to try to send the message around the world. Lord, we... We are not approaching Romans 6 with the idea that we have this, the answers or that we have this figured out. But Lord, we are going to do our best to try to understand what you want us to understand in Romans 6. We're going to be humble. We're going to acknowledge when we do sin and that, that we're not perfect. And so we have to interpret these passages in light of that reality. I pray that you would help us try to find the truth here. And that most of all, you would give us a desire to actually find the truth and not be happy with simple answers. And I pray that those who hear this, even though it's going to be controversial, that they would too think about this in a more careful and logical way. And we ask this in Jesus' name. And God's people said.